Uh, my name's Tom Carver. I'm a vice president at Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, which is a 100-year-old uh, American think tank. Um, but we do have a, a center here in Brussels and uh, a number of centers around the world in, Bru in Beijing and Beirut and Delhi and Moscow and places. Um, this is going to be a little different, the panel today, uh, to the other ones at the annual meetings because it is not on an economic or financial issue. But it was felt uh, very strongly that this was an issue that was of great importance and indeed obviously is of great importance to the European Union and the future of Europe and, and obviously has a number of economic impacts. Uh, so that was the reason for the panel itself. Good afternoon, Monsieur Vanier. You haven't missed anything, don't worry. We were just starting with the introductions. Um, so let me introduce the panel without further ado. On, on uh, my left, I have, uh, on my right rather, I have Jeremy Shapiro, who is the research director for uh, the European uh, Council for Foreign, on Foreign Relations, and was previously at the Center on US and Europe at Brookings in Washington and uh, worked at State Department planning under, as, as an advisor to Philip Gordon, who many of you know was Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs. Uh, on my left, your right, uh, Helen Wallace, who will be familiar to many, many of you, a very long time uh, studier of the, studier of the uh, European landscape, member of the British Academy, long distinguished academic career at Oxford, Sussex, uh, London, College of uh, London School of Economics. Um, uh, and uh, finally, at the end, uh, Monsieur Barnier, who is presently the Special Counselor for Defense and Security Policy at the European Commission. Um, however, as many of you know, on October the 1st, in a few weeks, we'll be taking up a very different job as the Commission's Chief Negotiator on Brexit, appointed by Jean-Claude Juncker. Juncker. Um, much to the horror, I must say, of some of the British tabloids who declared his appointment was an act of war <laughs> but maybe that's just because he's French, I don't know, and the <laughs> British ten tabloids tend not to like that. Uh, previously, he was the European Commissioner for the Single Market, was the Minister for Foreign Affairs uh, for France under President Chirac, um, and uh, is a person eminently qualified, I think, in many ways to be the Chief Negotiator. Now, I understand, Mr. Bonny, that you only have one hour, is that right, of time for us? Yeah, okay, so we wanna, I just want to make sure that we get the most out of this. You will also notice that Elmer Brock was meant to be on this panel. Um, he unfortunately had to leave late last night to go, um, but we will be hearing from him in, uh, remotely, as it were, later on in the program. So let me just start uh, by asking the three of you, you know, how serious are the security threats facing Europe, and what do you see as the, the most transcendent ones? Maybe we could start with you, Jeremy. Thanks, uh, and thanks to the organizers for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. I'm an avid consumer of, uh, of Bruegel's outputs, so uh, it's nice to be actually contributing for once. Um, you know, I, it's interesting. Um, it's very, very common these days to hear that uh, we face a sort of unprecedented security environment, that we, we face an enormous number of threats um, that are uh, sort of overwhelming 
the Western world. And, and certainly there are a lot of problems in the world, but I would argue that actually from, uh, from, Euro from a European perspective and from a more objective perspective, it is actually uh, not a very threatening uh, external environment by historical standards, um, which is kind of a maybe a, a contrary argument, but that's the kind I tend to make. That, that doesn't mean that there aren't real issues in the security environment. I mean, the ones that are raised most frequently are uh, the, the security threats from terrorism, the security threats from uh, migration, which is related, and the security threats from Russia. And those, those, that sort of triumvirate of threats is what sort of seems to dominate European discussions about the external uh, security environment. Um, I would argue that actually from a historical perspective, all of these are, are very real problems, but relatively small and manageable problems. Um, terrorism is by its nature a weapon of the weak. It, it is very threatening to specific individuals, um, but is in fact not threatening to nations, which is um, the definition of a security threat. Uh, Russia is a weak and declining uh, power which doesn't have a real, which doesn't have a real, doesn't pose a real military threat uh, to Europe, uh, particularly relative to Europe's military capability. Uh, it is of course capable of very much uh, mischief, but it's not the kind of threat that the Soviet Union was in its heyday. Um, and finally, migration is certainly a very important societal challenge, um, but a lot of countries including my own, but also countries like uh, Lebanon and Turkey have managed much greater uh, migration challenges without a sense of deep external security threat. Um, so why is it that we talk about these things so much? And you know, it's of course true, and I think it, it, it almost hardly needs to be emphasized, but, but I'll do it anyway, that security threats are not uh, objective. And they're not actually really uh, external. And this is particularly true for rich and secure countries uh, like, like most of the countries of Europe. Security threats are, in fact, reflected through a prism of domestic politics. And they matter most when they enter into those struggles. Uh, external th security threats, especially the three I mentioned, are right now very much uh, a weapon in domestic struggles uh, over many of the issues that we're discussing in the rest of the conference about globalization, about uh, uh, inequality, about EU governance. Uh, and when these types of objectively small threats enter into divided, angry societies, they get instrumentalized within the domestic politics and usually they get exaggerated. Um, and intriguingly, as a result, they actually become a little bit more real. Um, so migration and terrorism are bigger problems in Europe than they might be because of the uh, very difficult societal reaction to them, because of the very difficult politics within Europe uh, over these issues. And that it means that the reactions hurt the economy because they uh, because they uh, impose such draconian restrictions on migration. It means that they hurt civil liberties, they hurt the cause of, of integration of minorities because of the measures that are put into place to respond 
to these types of exaggerated threats. Um, in the Russia case, they create opportunities for the Russians to play on the, on the arguments or the dysfunctions within European societies around these issues, and so they allow them to foster instability. And this is what I call a sort of, uh, the sort of toxic interaction that's going on right now in Europe between these, the external threats that I mentioned and the very contentious domestic politics. Um, and the point of that, of, of, of drawing that out, is not to say that we should ignore um, foreign threats. God forbid, that's my business. I, I can't afford that. I have a mortgage. Um, but to, to really note that these threats, in Europe at least, stem from dysfunctional and difficult domestic politics more than they stem from external sources, and that they are made worse by uh, these domestic problems, and that they would not matter much in a Europe that um, had, its act, had its house in order uh, at home, which I know is difficult to imagine. Uh, but I think it's an important thought exercise because it does tell you that you're probably not going to solve the external threat of terrorism by um, chasing ISIS through uninhabited areas of Syria or Iraq. Um, you're, you're actually only going to solve it by confronting the issues that you have at home. That's an interesting concept that the reaction to the threat is actually as great as the threat itself. You've got a, at least one supporter over there. That's higher than my usual ratio. We can, we, we can come back to this in a minute. Michel Barnier, from, you, you've been dealing with these um, as the point person for the commission. Is that how you see them too, these issues? First of all, uh, I, I want to apologize. I'm very sorry for being late. Uh, I was not picnicking. Uh, uh, and I was not watching the car, uh, uh, but uh, to, to be frank, my, my agenda is a little bit complicated and complex yeah. today between uh, we, we sympathize. between my mission and defense on the side of President Juncker and the setting up of my new team um, for the negotiation with the UK. Huh? I, I, I know exactly what is written in the British newspaper, some British newspaper. <laughs> uh, um, I used to, 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 to read the same thing seven years ago when I was uh, nominated as a commissioner in charge of the single market and the financial regulation. Huh? At that time, I was called the most dangerous man of Europe. Huh? And finally, we succeed to, to build a clever um, global uh, financial regulation agenda, architecture, huh? uh, with the UK on board. Huh? So it's possible, and uh, my line will will be in the future and has been in the past to reach win-win agreement in any case, is my spirit. Uh, but I, I apologize and also unfortunately I have to leave for the same reason because I have to chair two, two meetings at the Commission, uh, Berlaymore this afternoon to, to, for the setting up of my, of my team. But um, uh, thanks to the Bruegel Institute uh, for this invitation to be in the side of uh, Jeremy and Ellen, um, and uh, also for the quality of your works, huh? very always very creative. Huh? Not, not only uh, on the 
global and geopolitical and economic challenges, but also on the Brexit uh, challenge, uh, if I correctly read your, your last paper. Uh, uh, coming to the, the subject, the security of Europe, uh, this is what I think. Um, the EU uh, is necessary and unique uh, for our external action in addition, in addition uh, to and on the side of uh, the member states. Because, uh, ladies and gentlemen, there is no other organization in the world capable to deploy so many and so different uh, instruments ranging from economic sanctions on one side to uh, military, military actions. Because the EU is both a treaty-based organization and the political expression of its member states. The EU is therefore a combination of policy and law. How is it relevant uh, uh, to say that uh, as never before, uh, Europe faces a pre-crisis? And this word of pre-crisis has been used, uh, I remember clearly, by President Juncker to qualify the current situation. Uh, and is right, in my view. Uh, crises are no longer the exception in Europe. We must deal with them every day. Uh, after the financial crisis, uh, whose consequences are not over, economic, social, political consequences are not over, uh, there is evidently uh, this crisis of migration, which amounts for 80% of the agenda of the European Council uh, in 2016, 80% of the agenda. For three years now, member states face a massive influx of refugees with two well-identified routes in the east and in the south. Uh, and, ladies and gentlemen, there is, in my view, no freedom of movement anymore if there is no secured and protect EU external borders. Uh, let me quote the Prime Minister of France. If Schengen collapses, Europe is dead. The challenge is huge. There are about 250,000 Syrians in Libya waiting for the opportunity to cross the sea. And there are about 3 million Syrians refugees in Turkey, without mentioning those in Lebanon and Jordan. So it's not over. And we need and we must deal with this. Uh, the second fight against terrorism. There is a new challenge with more than uh, five but more than 5,000 foreign fighters from and in Europe ready to perpetrate crimes at any moment. The enemy is not outside the EU, but in, is inside. Uh, can we promise that the situation is under control? No, we cannot. There is no other choice but to live with this risk, and we know that attacks can happen at any moment anywhere. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, for uh, 
uh, at least these three reasons, the financial and economic crisis, and all the consequences of the Eurozone and the governance of Euro, uh, the migrations and terrorism and security, the European project is at turning point. The question European leaders have to tackle together, and I'm sure they will try to do it in Bratislava in a few, few days, do we need more or less Europe? And uh, without commenting on the sovereign choice of the British people a few weeks ago, I think, I still think that we need to do more together. There is a permanent tension in this, the way European leaders are addressing crisis. For instance, immigration, the same leaders uh, taking decisions in Brussels on a European relocation mechanism do not implement them back at home. Uh, get me right, ladies and gentlemen. More Europe does not mean additional transfer of competencies to the institutions. More Europe does not mean more regulations. It means more efficient cooperation, efficient cooperation, I stress the word cooperation, among member states in a few strategic priorities. The union is expression of its member states, nothing else. Let me take one example, coming back to the main subject of this uh, uh, panel, European defense. The President Juncker appointed me as special advisor a few months ago because he was, and he still is, convinced that defense is an unexploited territory of cooperation. And because EU citizens call for more Europe in this field, uh, like uh, everybody in this panel knows quite well. How, ladies and gentlemen, can we explain that the EU does not have its own structures to deploy and conduct its missions abroad more than 15 years after the birth of the European Common and Security Policy? How we can explain that the EU has not sent any of its standby forces to solve crisis more quickly in Africa, while more than 20 battle groups have been set up for this since 2007, 20. How can we explain that Europeans are 10 years, at least 10 years, behind the US in the development of drones, while they have invested in more than 17 programs over the last decade? More broadly, how we can explain that there was more major cooperative programs between us, Europeans, 20 years ago than today. I'm speaking of, of at 9H19, the A400M, or fighter, and some of those uh, cooperative programs. Finally, uh, can we say that uh, we are serious in European defense matters where the financial solidarity in EU military operations is less than 0.05%, 0.05% 0 
of our total spending uh, in defense. These are just a few examples of what needs to be dramatically improved. European defense is required also, and I just mentioned this point in a few minutes ago in a meeting, a B2B meeting with a US counterpart in Brussels, because it makes NATO stronger. I was uh, a few weeks ago uh, in July at the NATO summit with President Tusk and Juncker and with Federica Mogherini, and this was a clear, a very clear message sent once again by the US. And uh, finally, uh, next week, at the occasion of the State of the Union in front of the European Parliament, the President Juncker will set the tone and frame the debate on European defense. Uh, one can expect uh, political proposals to be uh, tabled. That is why I have to say that this few introductory remarks. And once again, uh, let me apologize. I have to leave uh, sooner. I'm very sorry for that. That's the, no, that was a, no, it was a fascinating uh, tour of the horizon there. I, I, I want one question to ask you just at this moment, which is that when you argue very cogently for greater, the space for greater European cooperation on defense, you didn't mention the kind of political atmosphere in which this would have to take place, which a lot of politicians are very shy of their voters about putting any more European integration ideas in front of the voters. Do you, do you think that defense is the exception to that? You are speaking about the voters. Look at the polls. It could be a, a curiosity or a paradox, but uh, in the same time, we have so many uh, populist and uh, anti-European and uh, protectionist political movement increasing in uh, every, uh, every country, even in my country, where the extreme right is the first political party today in the polls and in the elections. Uh, in the same time, uh, in, the, in the polls, uh, the, the, the first uh, demand, the first ask for the voters are more security. And it is clearly why and where the political union, the EU, has to remake the proof of its added value. Uh, look at the, the consequences and the reason of terrorism uh, and, uh, and the attacks in Paris, in Brussels, and uh, unfortunately everywhere. Uh, how can we tackle with this? challenges uh, alone. Each, each country uh, uh, under its, front, its border is impossible. So I think there is a, a reality of the, the geopolitical reality and there is also a, a, a huge and, and, and stronger everyday demand of the, the, the voters to, to, to be protected. No, the reason why I think there is in Bratislava and for the, the next summit, uh, uh, momentum. And to be clear also, because I, I will be in charge of the, the Brexit negotiations, ladies and gentlemen, I think for a long time that we are with the UK and together uh, for the long term in the committee of, of, of interests, especially for, for, for our security and the stability of this continent. So we will have to, f to find, especially in this, in this field of defense, clearly, and security, uh, a strong bilateral cooperation with the UK in any case. Right. 
Okay. Well, we can hopefully unpack some of that. I just want to give Helen a chance. What, what, when you look out over the horizon, what, how do you see it? Do you, are you, do you believe that this is the solution for greater defense cooperation to these problems? Tom, let me just start, if I may, by a couple of words. I speak in my own capacity and not for the British, for the British Academy. Sorry, <laughs> I speak, for, I speak for, the, for myself and not for the British Academy. And I speak as a European who happens to be British and a rather unhappy person. So just let me say that at the outset. Um, I think I'm somewhere between Michel Barnier and Jeremy Shapiro. I do think we face a seriously unstable international environment. I think Europe's backyard is not a nice place. And the concentration of problems, fragility, unstable places on the map just around us is understandably a matter of concern. I agree with Jeremy, and I'll come back to it in a moment, that the way we talk about it can talk it up or talk it down and can lock the discussion into this or that kind of box. I wanted to make four points. One about, um, as it were, being more efficient, Michelle's point, being more efficient in forms of external action. A word about the narrative. Um, a word or two about our domestic publics, which has already been touched on. And then I think since I'm both European and British, I maybe need to say a word about Brexit. Um, I agree very strongly with Michel Barnier's point that we have many tools. And if you put together the tools that the member states have and that the European Union has, then that adds up to quite a lot of instrumentation. I think we could do much better than we do in the way we join up those tools and link them together. Um, linking over the kind of things that are overseas development assistance to um, is political judgments about the stability or instability of this or that country. And I think we need to think harder about some of the threats that haven't been mentioned, arguments about water, problems about climate change and the way that impacts on different parts of the globe and so on, and trying to build in much more systematically and better than we do already. And when I say we, I mean we broadly as Europeans, uh, the instruments that we have to deal with climate, water, instability and so on. I think there's a, there's a lot of work to be done. Um, and we need to avoid the policy silos that sometimes stop us from doing that properly. So that's my first point. Second point is the narrative. And I think um, it, what Jeremy said at the beginning was very important. I don't think all of these challenges are manufactured, but I think they're described in ways that have political consequences. And therefore we, and I would say this to you, Michelle, um, the European top-level policymakers also need to think hard about how we frame the narrative, the vocabulary we use. Because in the rush to say we need to do more, we can sometimes talk up in an unhelpful way um, the security challenges uh, that we have. So I think we need a more nuanced vocabulary. And it's perhaps an odd thing to say, but if you think back to the Cold War period, we actually had, pretty much in the West, a shared vocabulary for describing the Cold War. Um, I mean, there were extremes and reds under the beds and all that, but there were still broadly amongst the Western countries 
a shared vocabulary for talking about a shared set of objectives about the Soviet Empire and so on. And I think we're kind of rather all over the place these days. We don't have a collective narrative. And we don't, that collective narrative doesn't touch on some of the societal and economic dimensions which are there alongside the political and, um, and military ones. Um, and let me, if I may, to be slightly unkind to our wonderful host, Bruegel, make a couple of observations on the headline description for this session. A million-plus migrants have entered the European Union. Michel Barnier has just mentioned that as well. I think we've got to be terribly, terribly careful in the language we use about migration. I personally think it's always important to separate out economic migrants from refugees, from, as it were, climate change migrants or whatever, because the responses that we need to these different groups... I'm ashamed of how few refugees my country has refugees my country has taken in. We've taken in something like 2,000 Syrians. It's disgusting. Um, but and getting the language more nuanced will help us to um, maybe be a bit smarter in the way we think about responses. Or to take another example, again from the headline description. Numerous European cities have been terrorized. I don't think sentences like that should appear in print. In April 1962, I was due to go to Paris to attend an intensive French course at the Sorbonne with a lot of other sixth form student, school students. And it was canceled at short notice because whatever it was, 43 bodies had just been found floating down the Seine in the middle of the Algerian crisis. In 1991, my 10-year-old son, then 10-year-old son, was 100 yards from an Irish mortar attack on the British, Prime, the British Prime Minister's office. Terrorism is not a new problem. It's been around for a long time. And we have to be careful not to talk it up, however serious and however dreadful it is. And each of us can produce you know, different versions of that story. So I think just thinking about the language really matters. And why does it matter? Because Jeremy said it inflames domestic politics. Michel has said there's domestic support for more action to promote security. I'm not sure about that. I think if we ask about people's concerns, we know that security comes at the top of the list. But that's very, dif that's very different from people willing the means to address the risk. And I think that's much harder. Um, and, and maybe, um, I mean, the, the presence of, of all these um, populist parties across our different countries is a signal of some people wanting to turn away from the world rather than to engage more with making it a, um, a, a safer place. And perhaps I could just add here that one of the, one of the very clever things that the... United Kingdom Independence Party did in the British referendum was to join up the anti-EU and anti-immigrant worries in the population and make that indeed into a toxic commentation. Just briefly on Brexit. What, where does post-Brexit... Um, uh, how, how, the, the, how do the scenarios look for European security and foreign policy and so forth without... 
Britain as a mem full member of the Union. At the micro level, less money. The European Development Fund will lose the 14 point whatever it is percent of its income that comes from British contributions. The EU budget will be cut down, and I don't mean this to be silly, but it, the, I think what Michelle is saying, and I don't disagree with it at all, is we need to do more. We're going to be asked to do more, and there are going to be fewer resources to do it with, and I think that's, that's, that's quite a difficult situation. At the macro level, the European Union loses, I, I would say, one of the two member states with the largest global reach, Britain and France, with the most heavy-duty military capacity, with traditions of global engagement and intervention, even if we don't always intervene in a sensible way. So a European Union trying to strengthen its capabilities to deal with external challenges is going to be, in my view, and I say this not because I'm British, and I hope you won't take it that way, leaves quite a big hole. And it's a pity that it's the case that current British government ministers are so wrapped up in thinking about the other dimensions of Brexit that I think very little attention has yet been given in London to the question of what kind of partnership might be struck in the future between the UK and um, the remaining European Union in ways that could lead to cooperation. Should, of course, yeah. should we just, I, yeah. I just want to pick up on that point yeah. because I, I know that uh, Michelle's time is short. Um, maybe we could just uh, tease out a bit since you're in this transition moment between these two positions. What effect do you think Brexit will have uh, immediately on the European security policy? And, and particularly I'm interested in knowing how you think the EU will engage with the UK during this transition period. I mean, how do you see that happening? Yes. Yeah. I'm sorry, but I don't want to comment on the Brexit issues. And don't ask me to tell you what will be the end of the road. I'm not still begin to work. I'm waiting for the beginning, huh? <laughs> and I will be ready tomorrow morning to, to, to negotiate, but frankly speaking, let me set up my, my team in the next few weeks to begin my work the 1st of October and to, to go to listen and to, to meet all the, the, the governments, and I will be ready. But uh, one, sh one thing I'm sure of is that as far as security and stability and the defense matters are concerned, we'll, we, we must and we will, we will need to build a bilateral cooperation, a strong and bilateral cooperation. And if I listen carefully what is said in London, uh, I think the, the, the British government and the, the British opposition also are in the same spirit to keep the link. Uh, but let me come back just on one point uh, uh, made by Ellen about uh, how we can do more with uh, fewer resources, uh, back to your words. Ellen, uh, is, is it possible? Because the, the, the better cooperation don't need necessarily more resources. And we can do more with the same resources. Let me take just one example about research. Uh, I worked for one year on the side of President Juncker as a special advisor for defense. 
And one, uh, one first goal we have reached, not only one, is a proposal made by the Commission, put on the table of the Council and the Parliament, uh, uh, just at the beginning of July, uh, what we call the preparatory action for research. It will be the first step, the, 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 the foot we will put on the door to open for the first time in the new financial perspective, uh, uh, beginning in 2019 and 20, uh, for the first time, a program on research dedicated to, to military fields using the, the European budget. And we will begin by this preparatory action with, uh, I hope, 90 million euros. It's not a big amount, but this is the first step. And it will be the first time in the history of Europe that we use the, the budget, the same budget, Ellen, yeah, yeah, yeah. dedicated to, to, to research for defense. And we must do that because in the same time, in the same time, uh, if you look uh, what is doing on the other side of the Atlantic, with uh, uh, on the side of uh, our ally, uh, the United States, they are building a, a program, the same goal, using perhaps of around 10 or 12 billion uh, dollars. They get it to the research uh, on military fields, but it, it called the third offset program. Uh, we have also to work about uh, our strategic autonomy and for our industry and defense and research and innovation. And uh, once again, I am speaking of the same money. Huh? The money is already in, inside the, the European budget, but using it in another way. Huh? No, I mean, I think that's, that's an interesting point. I mean, I remember when I was the BBC defense correspondent back in the 90s, there was talk about this, about using more European money to do greater defense integration, procurement integration, even talking about a European army, which I know Mr. Juncker has, has talked about in the past. How do you see that uh, dovetailing with NATO? What is, if Europe does start to stand up in, in ways that were hinted at by Ms. Mogherini in her global strategy, a five-year plan for, for greater uh, European defense how does that fit with NATO, do you think? Uh, we had, uh, and I have had uh, for the last 12 years with President Juncker and uh, alone several meetings with uh, Mr. Stoltenberg, the General Secretary of NATO. And, and, and this team, it's clear for them, sometimes more, more, more clear from the NATO side or the US side than in some member states that. Uh, a stronger European defense means a stronger NATO. It's clear. And the contrary is also right. Huh? If we are weak, as we are weak, uh, not only for our uh, defense expenditures, but also the lack of cooperation between us. I, I, give, I gave you some example huh? for the battle group and so on. Uh, NATO is weak. It's clear. There's no ambiguity and no, 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 no question at that point. So the first step to be credible in the NATO framework, in the Atlantic Islands, the, the, the first step, the necessary step is for the European to, 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 to act to, together and to, to increase the expenditures and to increase their cooperation. And it's exactly what Mrs. Mogherini asked the European to do. You know, you know Ellen, uh, the only thing we can never find in a treaty or in a European directive, the only thing is a political will. No? 
But um, just at one point, coming back to what you said about the tools and what I said about the very uh, uh, useful instruments we are we have in our hands, uh, respecting uh, clearly the competence of the Commission, and I know clearly where are the limits of the competence of the Commission. Huh? Uh, um, we want to, to, to bring our part to this um, effort on defense and security asked by uh, the member states, the head of states, some of them, and also in the very important strategic uh, document presented a few weeks ago by Federica Mogherini on the, the global strategy and, and security. Um, it is the first time since uh, the, the previous uh, strategy presented by uh, uh, Javier Solana in 2003 that we have now uh, a common analysis and diagnostics and, 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 and proposals about our defense. The Commission wants to, to play its role and to play its part and to, to be useful. And what we are doing in the, in the framework of our competences is just to pull this, this instrument, to put all these instruments together. Let me just uh, quote one of them, the, the, the competences and the ex ex uh, experience or the, uh, the, the law of the, 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 uh, the, the competence of the Commission about the standardization, uh, the budget of research, uh, the, 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 the way to use the, the, the budget of development, uh, the space policy, the, 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 the institution of Europe, the European commissions are in charge of the space policy. Galileo, Copernicus, and perhaps, uh, as I hope, a third and new program on telecommunications in space. Um, and uh, the, the, aid, the state aid policy, and I can, can cite uh, uh, 10 or 15 yeah. instruments. What we are doing today is to put all these instruments together in what we will call the action plan of defense, and the action plan will be offer to the member states in, uh, uh, to accompany or to, to support their priorities. Uh, so it is the way we are doing and this action plan will be ready at the end of this year. Okay, I want to give people a chance to participate in this while um, Michel is still here. Do we have any questions from the floor at the moment? Yes, from over there. Please wait for the microphone. If there is a microphone. Do we have a microphone? That gentleman there. Please introduce yourself before you ask the question. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, my name is uh, Mohammed Rajai Barakat. And uh, as uh, I am a European citizen, my origins are from the Middle East, Palestine, and Jordan. I appreciate so uh, much uh, the, what, the point of view of Mr. Uh, Shepard about uh, refugees and about the migration crisis. But I'm asking myself, why do uh, European Council uh, work for more than 80% of its, uh, its agenda for these uh, minor issues, as uh, Mr. Shepard said. Well, 
I'd like to say, don't they have uh, something more, something else to do? Uh, when you have countries like Jordan, in Jordan we have 1,500,000 1, refugees, in Lebanon more, in Turkey also more, and uh, they do not uh, speak a lot about these issues. Uh, Mrs. Uh, Wallace, uh, don't you think that EU has a moral responsibility about concerning these refugees? Why they are here? What was the role of EU in the refugee crisis before they arrived here? The positions of EU concerning the war in Syria and Iraq and such more. And concerning also the economic refugees or migrants. Don't you think that Europe also is responsible because the EU developing uh, policy failed in uh, these countries? And the concerning security, uh, two days after the explosions, the uh, uh, terrorist attacks in Paris, I went to Paris with my car. Uh, there were a lot of control on the border. I took my uh, French car, Euro, uh, in uh, Renault Espace, Grand Espace. I, nobody asked me, what, where are you going to? If I had 500 kilograms of explosives, I was able to go to Paris. I went to France Vanquette so as to speak about uh, terrorism, and nobody controlled. Don't you think, Mr. Barnier, that all these measures, security measures, what you call security measures, are useless. Yesterday I went to Zeventon. I was, it was forbidden to me to arrive to the building, to the main building, and everybody was in the parking. If a terrorist came to the parking and put explosives, he, he is going to be able to kill more people also. All these measures, I think, are useless. Thank you very much. <laughs> Okay, well, there's a lot there to unpack. Um, Jeremy, maybe just to start with you about the European intervention or otherwise uh, that might have prevented some of these migrants from coming. Do you feel that it is, as uh, so, the gentleman I mean, said, a failure of a European development policy? Uh, no, not really. I mean, uh, I certainly think that European development policy has failed, but, um, you know, it's, it's uh, interesting to note that um, in the big refugee wave of 2015, about 45% of the refugees were from Syria, uh, which was the plurality, but not, uh, but 55% were from elsewhere. The, the next two contributing countries were, um, were Afghanistan and Iraq, um, which were countries that Europe did intervene in, um, <laughs> as well as the United States. And so it's not clear to me that the significant distinction is is uh, is whether Europe is or the United States is politically mobilized to do something about it. Because the fact of the matter is, we don't really know what to do. Uh, we have just as often created refugees as we have prevented them. And this is why I think um, the the moral responsibility, which I do think exists, um, really needs to be on the humanitarian front in terms of taking them in, in terms of helping relocation, in terms of helping them in situ. The idea that we're going to bomb our way out of the refugee problem seems to me to be a, a slightly bizarre one. Um, but that doesn't mean that the European responsibility doesn't exist. 
Michel, on the point of keeping Europeans safe, one of the challenges, obviously, of the European structures taking on more responsibility for this is that they're more likely to get more criticism when things go wrong. I can agree on this diagnostic or what has been said about the lack of answer fighting the terrorism. But unfortunately, as usual, as we saw in the face the financial crisis, we have been not prepared to fight or to face uh, against the, these challenges of this crisis. Uh, it was clear for the financial crisis, the reason why we have built or rebuilt uh, the European architecture following the G20 roadmap at uh, the heart of the crisis. And it had been the same for the Eurozone, uh, which was not prepared to face uh, uh, crisis uh, in Greece, one of the member states, and it exactly the same for the, the, the the, the Schengen uh, weaknesses and, and, uh, and the, the failing of our, the control of our borders. So um, the answer must be improved, and especially uh, you spoke about the, the border and the, uh, I congratulate you to use Renault, huh? but uh, <laughs> it's not the point. Huh? <laughs> the point is that we. we Normally, we have no longer national borders if the external borders are correctly controlled. And it has been not the case in the past. So the point is to have really the reason why Mr. Juncker, the Commission, have proposed to, to put in place, to set up uh, European Coast Guard and European uh, Borders Guards um, to, to, to be sure that this external control will be in the, in the future correctly uh, controlled. Uh, and uh, evidently, we have also to increase the level of cooperation between our services. And I can just tell you that it is the case today. Huh? Okay, other questions? Yes, this gentleman here in the second row. Quite hard to see in these lights, but I saw a hand. Just please introduce yourself. Yes, thank, thank you. Uh, yes, I'm Professor Linson from the MNRC Newport Network. Um, I've trained as a physician and specialized in neurosciences, so I come from a different perspective. Uh, I'm sorry, Mr. Barnier, I've got the Suzuki, so, uh, um, okay, um, yes, it's just a short comment. I mean, the um, migration issue has been so shockingly managed worldwide that I fear that this shall backfire. Uh, this uh, could create a hate among the immigrants, and this shall be an ideal place perhaps for ISIS to recruit. I'd like to say that the, a human being isn't born a criminal. He becomes a criminal. He or she becomes a criminal. Why? And until we have answered this question adequately and dealt with this question adequately, there shall be other Anders Breiviks. There shall be other mass murders in this world. Thank you. Yes. Um Jeremy and I were just saying, you obviously don't have toddlers at home if you think they're not born criminals, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you. Others, yes, this gentleman right here. I am Stefan Bujnam, CEO of Euronext. Uh, I, I would like to challenge for a moment the uh, opening statements of Mr. Shapiro when the sort of 
historical perspective and relativism, which is um, always uh, comfortable. Uh, but uh, the reality is uh, slightly different, even documented by hard facts. Uh, what we are uh, living through in Europe is very different from, uh, from textbooks. I mean, over the past uh, 18 months, uh, the amount of time that Europeans and European citizens have allocated to, uh, the, the, the amount of time that has been distracted to grow through securities or to accept some security measures is unprecedented. The number of people, of individuals, who have been killed, the number of casualties, uh, the, the, who are victims of terrorism that is, to say the least, inspired from abroad, not even if it is not only a, a foreign process, it is, is a multiple of the number of people killed in the Cold War. The number of, uh, the, 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 the sort of transformation of the legal framework of our internal societies that we have been through, the fact that a country like France is for almost a year now under uh, état d'urgence, a state of emergency, uh, is a transformation that was never precedented in, 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 in uh, when the nuclear threats were around us. The relationships with the military, the number of times people see soldiers, the distraction of military resources for the home front is unprecedented. The fact that from practical purpose today, one of the main limits to projecting forces outside our borders are precisely the home front constraints. This is pretty unique. Therefore, I want to insist on what Mrs. Wallace said about the narrative. If we uh, uh, play the road or enter the avenue of relativism, you know, let's put in a sort of Keynes way, in the long term we are all dead. In the historical perspective, no good, nothing new. Then we are creating a major misunderstandings with the European public opinions who are seeing for the first time, for a very, very, very long time, uh, uh, threat on their perception of threat on their, on their, on their, on their physical existence higher than ever. So that's, that's, a very, that's why, as, as Juncker says, there's an avenue here to, to, to enhance, strengthen, and revisit uh, the mandate of the European Union uh, for, for protecting people. At the end of the day, yesterday, I don't know, someone okay. in the panel was saying, Mr. Cole was reminding us that Mr. Cole's brother was killed during the war, and, uh, and that's this type of perception that at the end of the day, the Union is protecting us for and is guaranteeing peace, which has to be revisited. Okay, thank you very much. I know Michelle has to go. So maybe we could give you a round of applause. Is there anything else you'd like to say before you depart? Good luck with your new job. Um, I'm sure it will go very smoothly. I'm full of energy. <laughs> <huh>? <laughs> no naivety and energy and no a priori, no, no ideological spirit in any, in any case. Um, just. I know, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we are facing so many crises, as I said in my, in my first uh, remarks. And I know that the time for Europeans are challenging, but if we look um, with lucidity or uh, carefully to the, to the world around us as it is, uh, more fragile, uh, I'm not speaking only about the uh, climate change, uh, more unstable, more unjust, uh, I'm sure that uh, uh, we must act together uh, in some strategic fields. And I'm sure that as far as our protection, the security and stability of this continent is concerned, these fields are 
the, the key one to, to for this uh, common and uh, more in cooperative, I think, cooperative action between the member states and exactly what we are working for. And I hope in the middle of the road in the next few weeks that uh, um, the, the member states and the head of states will have together this political will that I mentioned a few minutes ago. I'm very sorry to, to leave, but thank you very much for the invitation. Okay, I think this would be a good moment actually to introduce uh, Elmer Brock. Um, he was going to be on the panel. Uh, as I say, he unfortunately had to leave late last night, but he did uh, record a very short, just only six minute video, which has some very interesting, I think you'll agree, entrenched comments in it, which we can then discuss. Uh, if we're ready to play that, maybe we could play it. Here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, I am so sorry that I cannot with you uh, this afternoon, but uh, I was asked in a short notice to speak on a big election campaign in uh, Croatia, and uh, there I have to fulfill my duties. But I would like to share a few thoughts with you, uh, because external and internal security will play a major role in the Bratislava meeting of the heads of state and government in a few days. And I believe that is one of the major questions where we have problems at the moment that people understand European policy. The main challenges we face coming from outside, on the economic market, the question of uh, globalizations, uh, but especially also the question of migration, terror, external security, and the relationship of internal and external security, which you cannot divide anymore as it was done in the past, because terror, for example, is in a way that ISIS does lend war in a classical way. War in Syria and in Iraq with 12 million refugees. But the same people organize terrorist acts in Egypt and Tunisia in order to destroy economic development in the uh, business of tourism there, for example, and create by a terrorism in Europe a situation that there is a big split between the Muslim population and the other population in order to have here more fights between people living here, which we have to avoid. I think we should not fall into the trap of ISIS and these other international terror organizations. What we have to do is that we organize ourselves in a way more as Europeans. These questions cannot be answered from the nation state anymore. And I believe that only together the Europeans can play a role in stopping the war, the proxy war in Syria and Iraq. This cannot be left alone to the Americans and the Russians with their different interests. We have to use our own powers to convince countries like Turkey, Iran, and Saudi Arabia to stop it. We have the economic powers for that. We have seen that sanctions work in the case of Iran. We see that sanctions work in the case of Russia. And because we should use these economic possibilities we have, because we would not like to, we would like to use all other possibilities before we take weapons. And uh, when we come to the violation of uh, international law in the case of Ukraine, we would not have war because of Ukraine, but the aggressor who is destroying the European order must know that destroying international law destroying the 
independence of member countries, the independence of countries, not member countries, of countries, this is against the quality of European law, and this can be only answered that the, this violator gets an answer that means aggression is expensive. But we have to find also new mechanisms in our own developments here. We have the three Ds, diplomacy, development, and defense. We have to use more diplomacy together, not 28 times. And I think here we have to be stricter in cooperation. The development question is in Africa, for example. Only if we, in this con uh, continent, where we have the doubling of the population in the next 25 years, we are able to give them a standard of living that people can stay there by changing treaties, trade treaties, fishery treaties, by better supporting good governance and many other situations, more money spending there, then we can have a chance that people will stay there. There will be a doubling of the population in the next 25 years. This is also the question to stabilize the Northern African countries. We can have only less migration in the Mediterranean with as many dead people and the problems in our own countries if we are able to cooperate with Northern Africa as we do with Turkey in this question in order to break down the figures having less dead people. In the case of Turkey, it works. We have seen that here we have last 100 uh, people coming per day. One year ago it was 10,000. But what we have to do is that we have to also be stronger with hard power. And here we have an incredible lack. And I'm thankful that Vice President Mogherini has now made a proposal that we will go forward here. After Brexit, the European secure defense policy will develop. Brits will not stop it anymore. The European Union will come up now with the possibilities of the Treaty of Lisbon for permanent structured cooperation, for headquarters, strengthening European Defense Agency. We, the proposal of President Hollande, think about a European Defense Fund of innovative possibilities to financing missions and financing procurement is of utmost importance. The member countries of the European Union spend more than 200 billion euros per year for their armies. But is, that is less than America, but much more than the United States, and we have more soldiers than the United States, but the result is bad, bad, bad. Um, some armies have overhead costs of 80%. And therefore, we have to do more in cooperation, find synergy effects, uh, do uh, this uh, research, and also this uh, on, and, and procurement together. I think that is of the utmost importance that Europe can play a role in the future and have an active role and is not just a spectator when others decide about our fate. Thank you very much. Okay, well, you're not going to have a chance to question him on any of that, I'm afraid, but anyway, um, there you heard a very muscular, European policy being laid out as the proposition for the future, both in diplomacy and development, defense, as he said, the three Ds. Um, Helen, he talked very explicitly about once the Brits are gone, then we'll be able to start the European defense policy. You, you 
hinted or said earlier how Britain's departure is going to leave a hole. How do you square those two things? I mean, I think Britain's departure both leaves a hole and changes the game. Elmer Brock is right to say that with the British not um, blocking moves towards more collective defence through the European Union mechanism, there is a greater possibility, though not necessarily probability, that the European Union member states might go ahead, operational centres, whatever this European army language might turn out to mean and so forth. Um, I'm rather with the British on this one. Um, I'm not always with my compatriots. Um, I think what Elmer Brock is talking about also implies a willingness on the part of the countries engaging in that to increase considerably defence and development expenditure. And I just, we're here in a meeting of primarily economists. We need to put this in context. There are lots of things we could all put on our list of things we'd like money to be spent on. Um, and the health service and education and all these things. I'm not sure that there's the room for manoeuvre that will enable more money to be spent on defence, either through the European Union budget or through national budgets, unless a better case can be made. And that's part of my point about the narrative. And it's hard to make that better case. I think it was Jeremy who said it. When we haven't done terribly well in some of our foreign adventures. So people may be more willing to pay for things that they think will work than the things that they think might not work. We also should make a distinction between internal security and, and um, keeping people safe within the boundaries of the EU and external sure. expeditions, right? Sure. And, and uh, what, I mean, not that the two are not linked, but there may be a greater willingness to have to spend money on internal protection and security than on external. Yeah. Although it's very interesting, the English Channel is full of small boats ferrying undocumented migrants across the Channel, and we can't stop them. We catch some of them, but there are a lot we don't catch. Jeremy. Uh, thanks. I think I wanted to um, go back to the question I was asked before the video about um, uh, the security threats. Because um, I think it's it's... Uh, it's interesting to, to sort of uh, try to unpack that analytically. Um, it's, it's really not the case that there is more terrorism in Europe today than there was, say, in the 1970s. Uh, in fact, there was, there, were, there was a greater wave of terrorism in the 1970s uh, than there is today. But um, you are definitely right that uh, a lot of the reactions to it, the military interactions that you talked about, the, the security checkpoints that you talked about, are unprecedented. These things are everywhere. There has been an enormous security response to this wave of terrorism, which we haven't seen in, in past waves. And my, my point is, while this wave of terrorism isn't objectively worse from an external standpoint, the reaction has been quite different. So what is the reason for that? Is it because we have a great, is it because we, we sense that this, this external threat is somehow going to overwhelm us? Well, the analysts don't think that. They, uh, you know, I guess they could be wrong, but in fact, ISIS is not uh, an organization which is about to land on the, on the beaches of Italy and start uh, moving up the, the boot. Um, what the, 
I would argue that the reason for all of these unprecedented security measures you've seen is because of the, the, the current domestic political setup, because of the way that, that terrorism now is able to pick at the seams of European domestic politics, because of the populist parties which are available to take, to take advantage of it, and because of the mainstream parties' need to react to them. Uh, and that this has caused what in the United States we call, because we have frankly the same exact phenomenon in the United States for slightly different reasons, what, we've, what we call security theater. So there is a lot of security out there which is specifically meant to tell people you are safe and your government is taking care of things, but actually it isn't really commensurate with the problem. And as, as I think one of the earlier questioners said, it actually doesn't have that much to do with the problem in most cases, and in fact, um, it doesn't really prevent the type of terrorism that we're actually threatened by, uh, which is presented by less um, obvious measures, although still important. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm, I am, I think, trying to associate myself with the way that, uh, that Helen put it. I think she put it somewhat better than I. These problems are certainly not manufactured. They are, they are definitely real. They are definitely uh, security threats, but they are... Uh, particularly from a historical perspective, manageable security threats, but what the, the reason that they have proven to a degree unmanageable is because of the domestic politics. And I would argue that you won't really get ahead of them. You can't actually solve a domestic political problem by attempting to um, uh, solve a, an external security problem. I would say there's another dimension, though. I mean, I, like Helen, you know, I was a student when the IRA was at its height. And I think, you know, things like the IRA, the Red Brigade, had very specific goals in mind. What ISIS, what makes ISIS different, I think, as a terrorist threat is its millennial mindset. You know, it doesn't just want to, you know, have independence for Northern Ireland or whatever. It has this end-of-the-world scenario, which is basically a willingness to blow themselves up for that purpose. And I think people in people's minds, there is an association of that with huge numbers. That, in other words, they're, they're linking, there's a linkage between the security, terrorism mm. issue, and the migration issue. And um, that gives a different flavor to the threat of terrorism. I'm not saying it's a worse threat, but it gives it a different flavor in people's minds to a very specific thing like the IRA or the Red Brigade. Well, I mean, I quite agree that it has a different flavor in people's minds. And the question is, where did that come from? Uh, the uh, ISIS doesn't have a millennial end of the world ideology. Uh, it has an ideology of establishing a caliphate. Uh, Al-Qaeda might have that ideology, arguably, but we're not really talking about them anymore. They just sort of went away. Uh, ISIS, um, and, uh, ISIS does not have that ideology. It has made ISIS uh, a different kind of terrorist threat than al-Qaeda, in some ways better, in some ways worse. All of them have their particularities. But the question really is, why are people so afraid of this one? Uh, when it is doing less damage than previous waves of terrorist attacks have, when, it, when its external element means that it has relatively little um, uh, traction within Europe. Uh, well, I mean, relative to the Red Brigades and the IRA and those, and those types of organizations. Right. I mean, I guess what I was getting at was that it, it associates with values, that the IRA weren't saying you've got to end your lifestyle in Britain or you've got to change. They wanted a very specific geographically limited thing, whereas this does associate with values of how we live as Europeans, how we have open borders. Do we want to have large numbers of Europe, Africans and Syrians in Europe? And it, 
Anyway, um, I mean, I, I think it's an interesting point to discuss, but it seems to me that is that it has a different quality to it. Why don't we ask some another opportunity for questions? This lady here, because <coughs> it'd be good to get some other views on this. Catherine Fior, EU reporter. Um, I grew up in Northern Ireland in the 1970s, and I would agree very much with Tom Carver when uh, Jeremy says there wasn't an enormous security response. Well. Uh, live in Dungannon in uh, you know, 1975, I think there was That's quite not a what I meant. significant security presence. Um, and it, it, I think it is different in nature. Uh, but what I would like to ask you is, um, you know, what, what, what can we do in, in, our, in what we do in the West to um, mitigate what some consider to be legitimate grievances um, uh, uh, about Western policy in, in the Middle East. I mean, recently we see there's a draft report from the House of Commons saying that selling arms to Saudi Arabia and therefore seeming to uh, assist in a, in a war in Yemen, which has breached all sorts of international humanitarian law, is, um, is a way that the West is seen as the bad guy. And I'm just wondering if we could do more. We have the common framework for um, uh, arms embargoes, which says that we shouldn't in the West, we, in the EU, we shouldn't sell weapons to countries that are involved in, there's a long list, but internal repression or uh, who are involved in wars that um, are, you know, where there, where there are war crimes. So what more would you like to be, see being done in that particular aspect, in the selling of arms to um, countries and what are the legitimate grievances? Obviously, those legitimate grievances do not justify terrorism, but uh, sh should we be doing more to tackle some of, those, um, some of those issues that ring true to a certain audience? And okay. Others? Yes, this gentleman here. Thank you, Anastasia Andreu. Um, I work in the European Commission. I personally am not afraid of ISIS, honestly, because I believe I have faith that somebody will take care of it. And I know that in the past, people have lived with some sort of danger being eminent to happen around. What I'm more afraid of is that only a couple of European countries have been left with the burden of guarding the borders. I'm more afraid of only one country getting more than 70 or 80% of the immigrants, and hence the problem of actually assimilating in a European society. And I'm also more afraid of those countries have, who have a great influence on their immigrants in EU, who also use spy methods or other media methods to change the European citizen. That's what I'm afraid of. Thank you. Yes, let's take one more over there. Hello. Yes. Um, my name is Kiram. I am Palestinian Syrian refugee in Belgium. And I just want to comment about IS, that um, I faced them. IS are um, normal people like you, but they have been trained and 
washed brain brainwashed yeah brainwashed <laughs> yes by the regime so if you go back which is CIA M6 and uh, all the intelligence agency knew about this that they have been trained by Assad and they send they have been sent to Iraq to fight and then they sent to jail and when the Syrian revolution happened they released them however IS took all the money from the petrol and so easy to stop IS and each one of us we can find the solution to fight IS but none of the European politicians want to stop IS because they need it and somehow so that's it okay. thank you okay thank you that's an interesting point of view um, one more here or there sorry someone's waving very furiously suggesting I've been ignoring them but I'm not <laughs> I just can't see no thank you I thought I was starting to be invisible which is a quality ah, so no, sorry, it's just <laughs> Uh, just light. a very simple question I wanted to raise. I Could come you put the mic closer to your... Yeah, uh, I come from DG Home Affairs, uh, heading the Department on Organized Criminality. Uh, I had a question for Mr. Barnier uh, in particular, but maybe I will turn it to Mrs. Wallace. But I think Mr. Chapiro in his last intervention has come a little bit more forward on that. And that was, you said that terrorism is a threat to individuals and not to nations. So my question to Mr. Barnier was, do you agree with such comment? And if so, uh, if you agree with such comment, how you justify a response that is war? War is a response that is only possible, legitimized if it is a threat to a nation. So this is my question now to Mrs. Wallace, if she agrees that terrorism is a threat to individuals and not to nations. Thank you. Helen, are you, I mean, I think it ties also to this gentleman's here, idea that it's changing the nature of being an EU citizen as well. You know, the fact that all these security measures are starting to be in place. How, how does that, how is that compatible in the end with Schengen and free trade, free movement of people? Oh, that's a horrible question. Um, <laughs> no, it's a really important question, and I think the answer is we don't know, do we? Because you don't know what's achievable, either physically, because it, there's much loose talk about we shall control our borders, but actually doing it is quite a different thing. And I would have said to Michel Barnier, if he'd still been here, um, trying to establish European Coast Guard service <laughs> around the whole of the coastline of the European Union is impossible. It's just simply impossible, um, which means we have, and this is part at the heart of what Jeremy's saying, um, we have to rethink the way we understand and talk about and respond to these various combination of migration, terrorism, refugee, and so on. Can I just react to something that Elmer Brock said in this context? He talked about the Muslim community. It's terribly misleading. There are many different Muslim communities. I could take you in the back streets of Bradford in England, which is my home turf, and you'll find many different communities there. And we don't help ourselves address the issues of social cohesion 
in our inside our country, which are at the heart of what Jeremy's talking about, unless we can understand better what's going on and what the fragmentation of the different communities implies. It's also worth, to that point, bearing in mind that most of the terrorist attacks have been committed by European and not by ISIS or people who've come over from Syria, uh, maybe in the name of ISIS, but not by ISIS soldiers, so-called. I want to ask about Russia, because we haven't really talked about Russia. Um, how, do, how does this new European security policy, how should they deal with Russia? How should they handle Russia? We've got, you know, I mean, we've, we've got the, both the hard power of this revitalized fleet occupying the Crimea. We've got large-scale cyber attacks that are taking place. Uh, we have, obviously, the mess that's still in Ukraine. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think when you sort of think about Russia policy and you think about devising uh, a sort of overall strategy from Russia, for Russia policy, you really wouldn't want to start here. Um, you would, you'd much prefer to start in uh, 1991 or so. Um, and I feel as if, you know, a lot of mistakes were made in those 20 years. I won't rehash them, but we sort of are where we are. And I think that's a critical feature for understanding Russia policy. The, the sort of uh, the sort of canonical approaches that were open to us in in the early 1990s, which were okay, let's try to integrate Russia in a wholesale fashion into the Euro-Atlantic community, or let's actually push back against Russia and um, and diminish it and make it as as small a, an element as we can on the on the scene. Are really neither of those are really uh, open to us. I think what we've learned in the last 25 years, or maybe should have learned. Um, is that um, Russia isn't going away. Um, it's uh, it's uh, the largest country in the world and it will almost certainly always be a pain in the ass. Um, and the question is, you know, if, uh, and you know, you can't even really move away from it. Um, so uh, the, the, what, what we, it seems to me what we have to do right, right now is think about in the first instance, an element of deterrence against their bad actions. And this is actually not primarily on uh, either the military front or even the sanctions front, although I do think that the sanctions have been a little bit helpful. But it's really more about um, hardening our vulnerability at home to what I think is the most effective Russian tool right now, which is a sort of penetration of European society in part through populist parties, in part through uh, propaganda, uh, but mostly, frankly, through corruption and through uh, organized crime. Uh, my organization is working a lot on those problems and trying to demonstrate how the Russians would do that. And I think that th those are problems which exploit various vulnerabilities, various flaws in, in European societies, various lack of democratic processes, and various openness to corruption, which vary a lot from country to country, that really I think the primary defense against the Russian threat would be dealing with those problems at home, which are problems to some degree of European construction that the, Euro that the Russians are exploiting. Um, but secondarily, in the long term, I would like, uh, the Russians have been effectively making the complaint, which I think, uh, despite their inappropriate actions in, in, in making it, have, has a degree of validity, which is that we never really tried to integrate them into the Euro-Atlantic community on what could be termed uh, compromise terms, 
essentially the terms that we offered them in the 1990s were, um, you know, you can come into the Euro-Atlantic community just like Lithuania does, just like Poland does, and the Russians had no interest in that and frankly didn't need to accept it and so did not. Um, and that created a lot of grievances and it created what we swore in the 1990s would be a problem, uh, would be something we wouldn't accept in Europe, which was a, which was a division of the European security space. Um, and so I think in the long term it would make sense, even in this very difficult environment, to be exploring with the, with the Russians, and, and we also have a project on this, um, what, what it is that they actually want out of the European security environment. This isn't just about Ukraine. This is about how they, how their security concerns are respected and accommodated with ours. Uh, I think that's a very difficult negotiation. The Russians, frankly, have been asking for it at least since about 2007, 2008, arguably since the early 90s. Um, and, I think we, and I think we should at least start to have it. Uh, we haven't really been willing to even engage it in a serious way. Can I add a word? Because um, what you're talking about, Jeremy, is, as it were, public policy government-led discussions with and about Russia. Um, in previous periods, there have also been societal contacts of one kind or another. I used to work at Chatham House, which used to run the Anglo-Soviet roundtable every year and so on and so forth. And various channels were there for informal communications and discussions and so on. They're much less available now. And it's really hard for organizations in this sort of non-official world to know what they can do usefully and with some impact to develop a dialogue and help build up interlocutors and so on. Let me just add in this context. We, we the Europeans, have a huge opportunity now to do that with Iran and to build the kind of cultural informal contacts with Iranian citizens, scholars, so on and so forth. And we would be very foolish if we didn't take that opportunity. Yes, I think it's obviously hard when you go down a path of sanctioning a country then to have large-scale social engagements, right? I mean, you're, it's a binary decision, more or less, which one you go down. And I'm not saying one is better than the other, but I, th I think you're right. And I, and I think it's, uh, it's difficult to talk about Russia without talking about America. And so, uh, obviously, Mr. Trump, who has not, I'm glad to say, been mentioned yet, um, but I've now brought him up, uh, has talked or th very loosely, as he does about everything, about uh, not perhaps honoring a NATO uh, commitment to Article 5 if there was any kind of sort of attack on the Balkans, on the Baltics. <laughs> um, what, what do you, Jeremy, well, let me talk about how, let's talk about how this question of delinkage with the U.S. I mean, we're seeing a U.S. that is turning inward, whoever's going to be president, uh, who is in a way, you know, occupied by the same sort of challenges and inward-facing issues that is besetting Europe. What does that mean for the transatlantic relationship and NATO and our ability, Europeans' ability, to, to thwart any uh, a Russian aggression? Uh, well, it, I mean, it means quite a lot, uh, especially for transatlantic relations. I think, you know, the, um, Donald Trump is, I, I guess it's the understatement of the year to say, quite an extraordinary candidate in, in this regard. And he really does stand outside uh, of uh, American foreign policy consensus, which has existed for the last uh, 60 or 70 years, on how we engage with Europe. 
Um, and so his election would be a massive break in that regard. And it, it's, it's, this is, I'm quite convinced, not a sort of something that he's just sort of throwing off his chest on the, in the heat of the campaign trail, uh, despite you know, not being blessed with the command of the facts. He, um, he, in fact, this goes back quite a long ways in that his frustration with, uh, with the world order that the United States largely set up as, uh, in his view, have, being a sort of raw deal for the United States, being that the United States essentially supports its allies, uh, pays too much, accepts bad trade deals in order to buy this stability that um, I guess they could just have anyway, uh, or that allies could provide. And this is why Donald Trump um, has more of a problem with allies than with adversaries. With adversaries, you know, you can sit down and you can have a sort of hard-nosed negotiated deal and you sort of know where you stand. But with allies, they're sort of like your relatives who, um, who you know, come over and ask to borrow money and then spend the rest of the day in your pool and won't leave. Um, and that's essentially the way he views the, uh, the transatlantic alliance. Um, and I think what he's, the, the notice that he's put, that he's given is that I'm not gonna run it that way. I'm, I'm going to make you pay. If you're unwilling to pay, I'm willing to walk away. And I actually think he should be believed in that regard. And no American president has said that. That will give him a lot of leverage in the negotiation, but I think in the current environment, I, I don't think there's likely to be a successful renegotiation of the transatlantic alliance, so I think there is a real possibility that he will walk away, that he would walk away. I'm, um, you know, thinking at this moment that he probably won't be elected president, you know. Um, and uh, in that case, I think what, what you have on the, on the other side is a candidate who is very much within that mainstream. And so the question is, uh, you know, as we look past this election, are we actually looking at, is, does Donald Trump actually represent a trend? Does he represent a movement toward isolationism or insularity or whatever in the American public? And, you know, in the first instance, I don't really know, but I think that um, uh, he, he, he isn't represented by any sort of establishment school of thought he, in, in, in these terms, in foreign policy terms. Uh, the the strain that he is talking about, that he is representing, this idea of allies uh, being a problem and we should take care of our issues at home, is, a, is an old political tradition in the United States. I don't think it's particularly more represented than it has always been. It is, it is, rep, it, it is an important strain of political thought in the United States. Um, but it hasn't ever found the kind of exp uh, expression, or at least hasn't since before the Second World War, found the kind of expression that it's found in Donald Trump. And I think that that actually, for reasons I could discuss at greater length but won't, has more to do with, with his celebrity and his uniqueness as a candidate than it does with trends in American politics. So I think if Hillary Clinton is elected, I don't think uh, she will have her own issues with Europe and particularly on Russia. Um, but I don't think it, we will have to think about uh, a, a major break in the way that the US treats the transatlantic alliance in the next four or five, or even 20 years. Um, I think you'll see from her, broadly speaking, a continuation of Obama's foreign policy, which will mean you know, hectoring the Europeans for not doing enough, but not actually threatening to abandon them. Yeah, I would just say living in the States, the thing that 
worries me is not so much the Trump victory, which I agree with Jeremy, I think at least on paper seems unlikely. Um, if you look at the dynamics of the race, he would have to get about 80% of the Hispanic vote based on historic trends, because it would either that or, or Hillary's white vote would, and I'm sorry to talk about it in racist, racial terms, but this is how the Americans uh, talk about their elections, uh, the white vote would have to go down to unprecedented low levels um, for Trump to be successful. And so that does seem, at least on paper, unlikely. I do think, though, that one should never, having been through the Brexit experience, never rule out something that seems unlikely uh, and that you know, many things can come out of left field. The one thing, though, that I would say is that even if Trump loses, what happens to those probably 40% of the population who vote for him? They're still going to be there. They're still going to be angry. They're still going to feel disenfranchised. They're still going to be harking back to this illusionary time when America was great at some space in the middle of the 1950s. I think that that's going to be, a, and with social media and Trump's megaphone, that's going to be a big problem for the American uh, public and the American politicians to deal with. Um, the one thing I think, though, that will not happen, even under Hillary, is probably TTIP, because Hillary has said she's against it. Uh, Hollande has obviously come out and said it seems unlikely to happen in Obama's remaining terms. So whoever comes in, either Trump or Hillary, they've both expressed opposition to it. So it would seem like it's unlikely to happen, at least in the foreseeable future. I, I don't think that Hillary has expressed opposition to the idea of TTIP. She has expressed a lot of qualifications as to what it must include in order for her to support it. It doesn't actually exist at the moment, yeah. so she hasn't, uh, she hasn't uh, expressed a, uh, a, a firm opinion. But what, what she has said, actually, is that she, she is in favor of the notion of a transatlantic uh, free trade agreement. And actually, she was quite instrumental in promoting that concept when she was Secretary of State. OK, other questions before we? Just can you hold the microphone, please? I would like to bring up one point and introduce myself briefly. I'm a Dutch economist, but I was also an army officer. I was a platoon commander in 59 during the Cold War and a company commander in 62. I'm now 78 years old, and I've been a, his a historian of war for quite some time. I'm a great admirer of, uh, of William Pfaff. I'm a great admirer of the way the Israelis were waging their wars. I'm of the opinion that Europe needs a fair number of battalions to defend ourselves. We have a lot of knowledge in Europe. Our English historians, all the historians of war, whether they live in France, in Germany, in the US, they in China, there is enough expertise around to know that we need to be able to defend ourselves, that we should not be dependent on the US. That ought to stop. I would like to, to see that stop. I've been living in the US quite long. I've been educated there. I've been educated in the, on the continent. I've been living in Ireland. Yeah since the IRA started its attack, I've been living in Japan. I'm an economist, I'm a novelist, I'm a poet. 
I'm a great admirer of Bertie Russell, and Bertie would agree with me. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Other points, questions? Any more colleagues? Any more? <laughs> one more here, and then I think we'll wrap it up. Thank you, Jérôme Legrand from the European Parliament. Um, one question which come to my mind uh, in these discussions is, uh, we've been talking about the support that people might give to European security, to, I mean, populist uh, uh, reactions and attitude reactions to, to the threats. Uh, I've got two points which I would like to share with you. One is the globalization, the globalized world in which we live in and the lack of understanding maybe that people have with regard to this globalized world and which, uh, of course, understandably, leads them to, to be scared, to be scared of everything. They're scared of globalized world. They are scared of what comes ahead because nobody explains it. And they probably jump into easy solutions, populist solutions. And the second is the time frame. Our politicians seem to be going for short-term, immediate reactions. And the difference between explaining complex world, uh, making strategies for the future in the long term, and immediate short-term uh, reactions, attitude, the, the soldiers in the street, of course, I share the idea that this will never protect us completely. You can't keep them forever there, and you can't put them everywhere. So what is the role of the EU? What is the role of the think tanks of, in explaining this to the population and, and building through a better understanding of the world, of the challenges and all these things? Why are we not progressing on this, which would help build maybe the, the support for the, the right policies for the, the right solutions rather than the short term. Media is of course has a role in this because we are Twitter, a Twitter world and all these, uh, these things. I'm just wondering whether we are not asking ourselves also why don't we help a little bit at our level, think tanks, uh, institutes, uh, uh, the EU institutions, the parliament for example, in, in explaining the world and therefore getting maybe the, the right answers by the uh, political support to it. Thank you very much. I'm shocked, shocked to hear you say that politicians are short-termists, my goodness. Um, I mean, I think, you know, the experience of Brexit was that experts often don't get listened to. Um, but, I Helen. Mean, the, the I mean, the, the experience of Brexit, experts didn't get listened to. The London elite didn't get listened to. That what was clearly a national interest set of issues, you, I personally could only make sense of at a very, very local level by trying to translate the messages into something that people locally could grasp. And that wasn't the way the campaign generally ran across the country. And I, I mean, it's very virtuous for the European Union to make virtuous pronouncements, but that doesn't necessarily transmit to communities in a context where we have rising inequalities within our communities and between our communities. Um, we have decreasing social cohesion and we have and that's why I think some of these are longer term trends possibly in America certainly in European countries populists able to operate on a spectrum that runs from gentle parochialism at one end to harsh xenophobia at the other end and to keep pushing the debate closer to the xenophobia end and away from the one can manage parochialism a bit more easily than, than xenophobia. So I combine that with declining trust in politicians and that, as it were, who the messengers are for the kinds of things we've been talking about. I think we've got a lot 
to think about, about how to do things and what to do, and not only say, here's a problem that we need to address. Jeremy, is there more the institutions of the EU can do in this regard, do you think, to be more effective at reassuring their people? I'd like to think so. I mean, I, I would definitely, you know, associate myself with your remarks. They, uh, I think it's, it's, you know, correct that people have a lot of misconceptions about these things and that they are, and that globalization and other, and other um, trends have made them frightened, particularly frightened of the outside world. Um, but I guess one of the things I have learned in my, um, in my years in a think tank uh, is that uh, nobody really wants me to educate them. Um, uh, to sort of say to people, well, you know, you don't get it. What you need to know, what you need to get is to hear the light from me. That hasn't worked in this room. Uh, and it's going to work even less on uh, this, the streets of a, um, of a disadvantaged community that is, feels like it's ravaged by immigrants or terrorists or whatever, um, even though, you know, they're not. Um, and I guess one of the things that was made very clear to me in the, in the Brexit campaign in the UK, which I did live through, um, was that um, the effort to tell people who were frightened about uh, globalization or immigration that they shouldn't be was a very counterproductive one, even if it was correct. Um, and that actually what institutions like the EU need to do is to, and I think the EU, governments in general haven't been great at this, but the EU has been particularly bad, is to sort of, th is to acknowledge where people live, acknowledge what people's fears are, uh, and that they have an ipso facto reality to them just by the fact that they hold them, <laughs> um, and that they need to be addressed, not just um, dismissed. And so it's not just a communication campaign. I, I, I always bristle when I say we need to learn, when someone says we need to learn to communicate better, we need to sort of put some lipstick on the policy pig. Um, that is, I think, uh, the, the problems are bigger than that. What we need to learn to do is to hear what, uh, what people are scared of and find ways to address those problems without destroying the institutions that we, and the values that we think are really, are really important. And that means, I think, I guess probably that does mean moving a little bit down the spectrum, but doing it in a way which is responsible. That's the only kind of politics which is really uh, possible right now. And it's simply not enough to be correct. It's not enough in this room, and it's really not enough in the broader political sphere. Uh, and if you think you can win political arguments with, with facts and righteousness, you think you have a big problem in Europe. Okay, I think we'll leave it there. That idea, the conundrum of whether we can move down that register to reassure and assuage people's fears whilst being still true and faithful to the values of the European experiment is a very difficult thing that will be played out in the years to come. But Thank you, Helen Shapiro. Thank, I mean, sorry, thank you, Jeremy Shapiro and Helen Wallace. <laughs> Very much indeed, and my Michel Barnier.